Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear friends, during the past weeks of this Lenten season, we've been considering the wondrous wounds of the Savior from heaven, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who the prophet Isaiah said was wounded indeed for our transgressions and was bruised for our iniquities. The wounds of Christ Jesus, five of them as depicted by the five red ruby stones on the paschal candle, the wounds of his hands, the wounds of his feet, the pierced wound of his side, the wounds of his head, and the most agonizing, of course, wound of all the wound to his soul that struck out against both God and man, the wound that he suffered as he separated from the Father, a separation which you and I deserve for all of eternity. Indeed, as the Passion Prophet puts it, the Lord caused the iniquities of us all to fall upon him. And note it well, it wasn't enough that the Son of God simply become man for us, that he simply become the physical, material look-alike of what we are as human beings, as wonderful as that was, that God did indeed become man even as we are. Still, it wasn't enough. No, God had to become sin for us. A sinless one, becoming the most sinful of all in all the world as he gathers and he bears in himself the sin of every man, woman, and child from the beginning to the end of time. He had to do it, and that he did. His five holy wounds bearing incontrovertible witness to it, as did so many other things which the Lord put into place so that his people would never ever forget throughout all of the course of human history what he there on the cross accomplished for us all, what indeed his love moved him to do for us all. Indelible marks of his passion that God has for his people, be it the five wounds of the Savior prophesied of old and re represented at the Paschal candle, or be it that ancient Paschal feast itself, the feast of the Passover, the Paschal candle, the Paschal feast, which when all was prophesied that was fulfilled, was divinely fulfilled then and divinely morphed into this holy supper that we celebrate tonight. And so the ceremonial washing for the feast is fulfilled in that greater baptismal washing of regeneration by which God has prepared you for this feast, for the ultimate Passover indeed, the bitter herbs of the feast pointing ultimately to the bitterness of our sins which Jesus then would taste and would swallow on our behalf that we wouldn't have to taste it ourselves. The kareth soths, like the heavy mortar which the Hebrew slaves during the Egyptian bondage would carry, reminding us of the power of sin which once enslaved us, he took upon himself the unleavened bread of the feast, marked interestingly with small holes all over it, pierced into it and striped because of the baking process, all pointing to the very body of Christ which was pierced through for our transgressions, as the prophet Isaiah said, that and by his stripes we are healed, and all because of the leaven of our sin. The juice of the grapes, the wine of the meal, bears to us the very blood of Christ, which like grapes has been pressed out on the wine press of God's wrath, that he might 
indeed be spared the righteous indignation of God that we deserved. You see how God is constantly through all of these things, and especially the Lamb of the Passover, sacrificed and blood smeared upon the doorposts that the angel of death might then pass over, all pointing ahead to the greater Lamb of God whose true blood, not upon wooden doorposts of houses, but upon the lips of souls at whose portal the angel of death, now eternal death, must stop and destruction has to pass over all pointed ahead to not only by the marks of the crucifixion of our Lord, but also even by the supper that he celebrates on the night before those marks were embedded upon him. You see, everything about the Old Testament Passover is fulfilled even in the wounds of our Lord Jesus Christ. It shouldn't surprise us, because Jesus himself said that he had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. And even after his resurrection, he told the disciples on the Emmaus Road that everything that had happened during the week of Passover had occurred because everything that had been written about him, he said, in the law of Moses and in the prophets of old, in the Psalms, they must be fulfilled. That's why tonight, as we solemnly consider and prepare to once again receive this holy supper of our Lord, we do well to remember what St. Paul says about being prepared to partake of this holy meal. And what he says about it doesn't just come out of a vacuum, but rather it comes from history, from these very things that we're discussing from the Passover feast. And so when St. Paul writes, for example, therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty, not simply of bread or wine, but shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. He speaks from the background of the Old Testament as well. You see the holy meal of God, the Lord's Supper of the New Testament that replaces the Passover feast of the Old Testament is not indiscriminately given to anyone and to everyone, just as the Passover meal wasn't given to anyone and to everyone. For example, none outside of the confession of Israel were permitted to eat of the Passover feast. And not even all within the household of faith could partake of it. Those who were ceremonially unclean at the time of the Passover were also forbidden for their own good to partake of it, lest profaning it they would take it to their harm. The same thing was true of other Old Testament meals. The peace offering, for example, was given by the priest to the people to eat, but again the priest couldn't just indiscriminately give it out to anyone and to everyone. Some because they were unclean or uninstructed regarding the holiness of what was being offered were out of love and for their own good not permitted until they'd been properly prepared were not permitted to receive it. The priests were charged with the responsibility of seeing to it that the unprepared did not unwittingly eat of the holy things of God and there bear the guilt of having done so. There was no open communion in the Old Testament, just as there wasn't in the New Testament church, which so carefully restricted access to the Lord's Supper that all who had not been properly prepared by instruction to receive it were even in the New Testament times in the early church were even dismissed from the room after the service of the word had been completed and before the service of the sacrament began. 
There was literally a break in the service. A remnant of that break is still reflected, in fact, in our liturgy today. After the sermon is preached and after the offerings are received and the prayers are offered, what does the pastor do? Then comes the preface to Holy Communion. And he greets the communicants and he says, The Lord be with you. And they responded with your spirits. It's as though a new service is actually beginning all over again. And that's the way it was in the early church. It was beginning all over again as the service of the word gave way to the service of the sacrament. And those that had been there for the service of the word but weren't prepared for the service of the sacrament were then at that point in time dismissed. Lest anyone might receive it to their harm. Why was such care given to these things in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament? Because the church knew, in old or in new, the church knew that it was handling holy things. It was handling the things of God. Because the church knew that these holy things of God had been designated by God to be the means and the channels by which God would communicate his holiness to his people. The same holiness which would indeed bring judgment upon those who didn't recognize it for what it was. And so St. Paul says regarding the Lord's Supper, he therefore who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't discern, if he doesn't recognize the body rightly. The holy things of God for the people of God, people who've been made holy through faith in Jesus Christ, people have been baptized into Christ, people have been instructed in the word of Christ, so that when they approach the altar of Christ, they know and they believe that they are receiving in the consecrated bread, the very body of Christ, and in the wine, the blood of Christ, the holiest things that can be given by God to man. Come then. Come to the table of the Lord again. Come to partake of the holiest of all things that you can ever receive in your life, the very body and the blood of Jesus Christ. He here comes to you veiled in these earthly things in bread and wine that we sinners might not be consumed by his naked glory, but rather that we here individually and personally might receive in faith all of the blessings of salvation that he won for us upon the cross of Calvary. The fruit of the tree, as we heard before, bending lowly to us to be given to us in bread and wine, namely the very body and blood of the Lord himself, come and reverently bow, not as a gesture of greeting to the pastor, not even as a token of reverence for the altar, which is but the symbol of the presence of God. Come reverently and bow before the actual presence of the Son of God on earth. The Son of God who once became incarnate for us in Bethlehem and here extends his incarnation into our time, into our place, into our lives is right here and right now we receive his very body and blood. Come gratefully to receive Christ who is here to prepare indeed not only your souls but also your bodies for eternity. And so Luther says Christ surely will make even our body eternal, alive, blessed and glorious 
If we eat him spiritually through the word, he abides in us spiritually in our soul. If one eats him physically in the supper, he abides in us physically and we in him. For he is not digested or transformed, but rather he ceaselessly transforms us, Luther says. Transforms our souls into righteousness and our body into immortality. Luther believed, as did so many of his predecessors in the faith all the way back to the apostles, that the Lord's Supper benefited the soul and the body. Even as sin ravages the body as well as the soul, so also Christ delivers the body as well as the soul. And so it was, for example, that Ignatius of Antioch, a contemporary of the apostles themselves, calls the Lord's Supper the medicine of immortality. Justin Martyr, who was born before St. John died, spoke of the Lord's Supper saying, We do not receive the Eucharist as ordinary bread or as ordinary drink. The Eucharistic food is the flesh and the blood of Jesus incarnate, food that is assimilated and nourishes our flesh and our blood. Nourishes our flesh and our blood by preparing them for the resurrection of the dead at the end of all time, prepares us indeed for eternal life. Any wonder at all that we sing, even as we will tonight, as we have so many times before, break forth therefore my soul and say, what wealth has come to me today, what health of body, mind, and soul, Christ dwells within me, makes me whole. Come, in faith, come to receive the holy things of God, prepared for the people that he, by his grace, has made holy. Come and receive the very body and the blood of Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.